Welcome to the Black History Toolkit podcast with Abu Bakr Madden Al Shabazz. Support the channel by subscribing and also making a donation via Patreon or buy a cup of coffee on Kofi. See the links below. You can also find out more by visiting the website abubakamadan.me. History is based upon two basic principles time and space. Time is chronology and space is geography. This is the first thing we need to understand. So you have what is known as figurative information, and then you've got what is known as like qualitative information. So some, infor some information when you deal with history is written with a script or with words, and others are based upon figures. And this is how history comes together when you're looking at time and space, when historians themselves are using these basic principles in order to develop a basic understanding about the past, about the present, and about the future. Okay, so what I have here, time is based upon number sequences known as figurative information. So it's about figures here, okay? And space looks at direction, okay, which is geography. And I'm gonna show you how all these things come about because it is a system to history, historiography, historicity. It is a system behind that, you know? It has principles, it has foundations, etc. And these are just some of the basic things I'm gonna go through in this presentation. So when we look at time and space, between time and space comes a narrative. It looks at events, what actually took place. So time, like I said, is chronology, is figurative information, space is geography. But what is important here, when we're looking at the narrative, this is where the qualitative and quantitative data comes together. That synthesis allows us now to interpret a particular event. This is what this is about. So like I said, time is quantitative in its, in, in its data, in its findings, in its outcomes, and space is qualitative, based upon good, wholesome information. But when the narrative comes at the center of that, it synthesizes the two. History is based upon time and space. You've got time, which looks at duration, areas, era, a period, moments, years, dates, months, years, etc., etc. This is figurative information. So when we're looking at that, we're looking at the time or the chronology, as to speak. We're looking at when it took place. When did this event take place? When? Okay, this is what it's about. We know when in the ancient world, they built observatories in order to understand the planetary systems, the cosmology of the universe, because this is how they're going to regulate themselves as well as time, statistics, wealth, money, the economy, etc. It is figurative information. So basically, it's all about using numbers. And we use numbers in everything that we do without sometimes even realizing it, from telling the time, you know, until, you know, changing something over on the television on the remote control. We use numbers every day, sometimes without even realizing it. Now, when we're dealing with space, which is geography, these are some of the things that we look at when we're investigating people or people's society. So here, for instance, you've got place, era, or area, region, town, city, county. You see all those things there. So for instance, how are we gonna bring this thing together? So for instance, if I was looking at a date, I would look at, just throw something out, 1066, okay? Battle of Hastings, that would be a date. And then what would happen then? So you've got the date, and I, want to, and I would want to connect that to something. What happened in 1066 in a particular village, okay? What happened in 1066 in a particular city? This is how these things come about. So what you will find, they will cross each other in one way or another. 
This is where the qualitative and the quantitative information comes together. So when we look at history, we always have to ask ourselves, historians or students of history, the five or six principles, the who, what, why, when, where, and how. And there's always going to be two narratives to that. There's going to be a subordinate, and a, you know, there's going to be a subordinate narrative and a dominant narrative. A dominant narrative is usually by people who were victors who defeated a particular group, people, an army, whatever the case may be. But there's also another narrative. One of the unfortunate things about history is that history seems to focus itself on an official narrative. And an official narrative is usually what is constructed socially, politically, legally by the winning class or the winning group. So a good historian looks at two aspects of a society. It looks at those who are for and those who are against. Because in ancient African societies, in ancient African civilizations, one of the things that we, we come to realize, they believed in what was known as the principles of polarity. They believed in the laws of opposites. So what that means is that two opposites are not supposed to go through conflict. We're supposed to reduce conflict, male, female. Not male versus the female, boy, girl, up, down, left, right, hot, cold. This is how the ancient African societies from the beginning of time understood things, things in pairs. And within the field of sociology, you would see that when black history is taught, it's usually taught through the principles of conflict theory, never the consensus theory. So it looks at when uh, Africa was shattered, colonized, when the enslavement period comes in. And if you were to ask any person about black history, this is the period they will focus on. And usually within the last 500 years, which is the last chapter in our experience. So we have to be much wider and what archaeological evidence is showing us through excavations, okay, and what DNA is telling us is that we as a group of people, or as a cluster group, are the oldest people to walk the planet, which means we're the first people to walk, talk, read, write, observe the planetary systems, okay, the first person to have labor, a menstrual cycle, the first person to have a headache, okay, when we take it back to its right, the rudimentary beginnings, right to the, the core of human evolution before human diffusion, this is what we begin to understand really and truly about our ancient ancestors, because there's only one family, and that is the human family. Unfortunately, through, through time and space, many people have come in and tried to destroy that in some way. So those principles of polarities were then put into conflict. The rich versus the poor, the strong versus the weak. One is supposed to help the other. But unfortunately, through time and space, and as far as history is concerned, those things have developed into some of the most negative experiences that people actually go through in today's society. So when we're looking at asking questions, who is history about? I was on the radio, um, when it was it last week, and I listened to the recording, and they said, well, should we get rid of Black history? Should there not be a Black History Month? And my simple answer was, was is that basically, we, to us, Black history is a daily experience. Unfortunately, during colonization and the enslavement period, we were made, we were made to become a footnote in the experiences of the imperialists. And that's what that basically came about. So when we're talking about Black History Month, we are trying to recover ourselves and put us back into the pages of history where we were physically torn out and relegated to a peripheral or a pariah entity within human society and human development. So who is history about? 
So we always have to look at the polarities. We have to look at those people who are the victors and those people who are the losers. What is history about? Why is history about what it is? So we have to always read between the lines. A good historian reads between the lines and studies people. Not like what colonial administrators did, because the field of anthropology actually started off by colonial administrators. And those of you who come from research departments who understand, you know, um, observation, you know, field work, etc. One of the things was, was that they believed at the time, which is a positivist perspective, that if you, if you were to look at a particular person from afar, you can use your cultural ethics to interpret that person's behavior. This is ethnocentrism now. We know this now. So for instance, if two people are fighting, for instance, if you're from a far distance, etc., are they actually fighting or are they actually playing? And this is why participant observation later on became an important factor in the fields of anthropology. So the reality is, is that the colonial administrators were the first people that went in to study people, especially people in Africa, to report back to the colonial office in order to understand how they could control them. So the first historians, okay, were colonial administrators, if, as far as an anthropological aspect is concerned, or the anthropological field. This is how this comes about. So these are some of the things I need to emphasize while I get into my presentation. So when we look at history, we know that the word history comes from his story. So it's been male dominated through the centuries. While about my story, which is the other polarity, that is where they believe that the word mystery comes from. But unfortunately through history, women are being kept out of the narrative when they're the foundations of a society. So the reality is, what about history and what has taken place, especially since the 1960s with the civil rights movement, with the liberation movement, etc. Women were forced to put their things on the map, to put their things into the academy, you know, their experiences. This is what this was really and truly about. So they had to fight to put themselves back in history, just like black people had to fight to put themselves back in history. Poor people had to fight to put themselves back in history. So all different groups who have lost some ground within the past have had to fight some way, in some way, in order to put themselves back at the center. So there's history, my story, or mystery. Her story must be within those polarities. If you look at prehistory, for instance, one of the things you will notice, you've got all these different Venuses, the Venus of Wellendorf, as an example, which was, found in, which was found in Austria or Germany, probably Austria section, which dates back to approximately, well, between 30 to 40,000 years ago, when Africans were caught in Europe through the migrations, etc. They were, you know, they were creating these things from bones, etc. And the thing I wanted to, wanted to bring to your attention is that all these figurines you see that is dated back to 20 and 30 and 40 and 50,000 years in Europe and in Asia, in Eurasia and all these places, are, fe are females, not males, are females. So what is that telling us about antiquity? What's that, what is that telling us about the prehistoric period that we see more images of females, big breasted, you know, with big buttocks and all these other type of things, these Venuses. Why are there more female Venuses and male Venuses? There's hardly any male Venuses in actual fact. So what was man doing 
30, 40, 50,000 years ago. How are women being treated? They must have been revered for statues to be made of them, for us to dig up during these archaeological excavations which is taking place around the world. So there was a time where women were at the center of narratives, especially in the prehistoric time. They may not have been writing written scripts, but we got the physical evidence, the artifacts to show us so we can read into it that there must have been some conviviality between the male and the female and the boy and the girl. That's what it had to have been. And this is important for us to try to recover history because I'm, as a historian, I'm a recoverist. I'm trying to put those missing pages back in. Even though I specialize in the black and the African experience, I'm pretty good in other people's experiences as well because Africans were the first people in those society, so I have to study them before, you know, genetic mutation take place, before the pigmentation started reducing their bodies because of the colder climates they were moving into. And then, you know, so for me, this is important, world history. So when I'm talking about black history, black history was something that we were relegated to. And the thing is, if you go to any bookshop, if you, especially in Cardiff, say, for instance, go into Waterstones or Blackwells <clears throat> and have a look, at the history section and see which ethnic group, racial group, community or nation is in the history section. And then have a look on the peripheral aspects of those, of those bookshops or those bookstores and see where people like myself are placed. And then you'll realize that this concept of a black history or a black history month was socially constructed by people who became the imperialist at a certain time. So they were the ones who write in the narrative. So we were not a part of history. This is what this is about. So let's look at the birth of Eurocentrics. So there's Charles Montesquieu, who was a philosopher. And this is where the defamation of black people starts to begin. This is around about the 1700s, where he says about this. These creatures, this is how he refers to Africans, or these Negroes, because that's what we were called back then. These creatures are, are, are all over black and with such a flat nose, okay? So he's emphasizing the phenotype here because it's not a phenotype of the Europeans. Because after 1492, when the Moors were destroyed, this is when we see European hegemony starting to rise. And then we start to see where darker skinned people were now made into a footnote in their history. It was a way of trying to whitewash everything. This is what really started taking place. So he says, these creatures are all over, <coughs> all over black and with such a flat nose that they are scarcely, scarcely be pitied. In other words, you can't distinguish between who, which one is which. They all look the same. This is a 17, this is a 1700s language, the 18th century language. It is hardly to believe that God, who was a wise being, should place a soul, especially a good soul, in such a black, ugly body. So here we start to see the characterization of dark-skinned people taking place because of the social positioning they were within particular nations. This is how it came about. This was a science at the time, even though it's pseudoscience now, because people had, were educated and they had these particular theories which they were trying to pass off as facts, which was justifying to some extent the colonization the imperialistic objectives, okay, and the enslavement of people. So those people who are involved in making a hell of a lot of money can justify to themselves and can live with themselves. This is what this was about. So the, so the likes of Charles, uh, Charles, um, 
Charles Montesquieu is a prime example. Then you have David Hume, who was supposed to be the father of Scottish Enlightenment. And this is what he says about the Askian people. There never was a civilized nation of any other complexion than white, nor even an individual eminence, either in action or speculation. In other words, in their behavior and their thinking process, speculation, thought. This is what he's talking about. No genius manufacturers, which means we did nothing to do with technology even though there's flint and there's a metallurgical trade in prehistoric times, okay? This is a complete dismissal. Among, um, among them, no art, no sciences. And this is, this is, this is a load of rubbish. Archaeology, archaeological digs and excavations are showing that this is not true. And we, even within the modern cultures of many black people, whether in Africa or Australia, because you check this out, which countries are dug more by archaeologists, black countries or dark-skinned countries or white-skinned countries, because they need to look at their past. Their past is in other nations, okay? Africa has dug up more than any other continent, and not just for their minerals and commodities and resources, but also for what? Also for the so-called treasures of the earth, okay? This is what archaeology was, is based on. You know, the treasures of the earth, you know, finding things and trying to understand the past. This is what it's all about. So why they go in there? If there's no, if there's, if there are people of nothing, why you go in there today? And they're finding out things 20,000 years, 30,000 years, 40,000 years. So we have to think about this. Then we got Arnold Toynbee, a British historian. And this is just a quote. He did a lovely volume of history. I can't remember the amount of volumes which he did, but he was revered to be one of the best uh, historians in the 20th century. The black race has not helped to create any civilization, any civilization whatsoever. This is his belief. And people fell for that. People believed that. In Oxford and Cambridge, this is what was taught. When black history or the black experience was taught at the universities, it was called what? Colonial studies. That's what black history was called, colonial studies. So it was clear, you can see from colonial studies to black history, how you're marginalized, how you're put on the periphery, how you're polarized, not just socially, but literarily speaking. Why African history and black history month? And I've just given you a little um, sample of what is taking place for why we are, we are today. Okay, Black History Month started around about the 1930s in America by Carter G. Woodson, where the second black graduate of Harvard University, because you know about racial segregation, and black people weren't allowed to have an education. Even amongst my people who live in Jamaica, we were controlled by the British until we had independence in 1962. But I come from four, pair, four grandparents who were still alive when I was around. My grandmother, was, who was a great teacher of mine, she couldn't read or write. She was born in the 1800s. I have that type of connection with the past. I used to sit and listen to her stories, etc. She was telling me she was still a slave. But wait a minute, I thought slavery was abolished in the 1830s. But you're, you're saying you're still a slave? So what I started to realize, there are two narratives here. One person saying one thing and another and one person saying another. So we have to understand how this split, how this polarization between us versus them came about. David Hume, you know, uh, David Hume thinks that we didn't create any civilizations. It was all white. These are all the civilizations in Africa. Do you, do you, do you see the problem now? This, these are the, civ and these are some of them. The Yoruba civilization, classical um, Kemet, 
you know, it was called, it was called Egypt by the Greeks. Kemet means the black lands, okay? That's how the people refer to themselves. Then you got Kush, okay? You got Ethiopia. Ethiopia is a Greek word, which means burnt face or black face people. So they were influenced somewhat. If you look at the Odyssey and the Iliad, they talk about Ethiopia, but not Ethiopia, the country. Africa was called Ethiopia. It meant the dark-faced people, burnt-faced people. This is what it meant. So David Hume, Montesquieu, okay, what we have to say about this, that you've lied. You have lied. And the fact is these lies have been perpetrated to such an extent that when people from these communities are trying to tell them about their past, because, you know, imperialism has an attitude that I know more about you than you know about me. I know more about you, like Egyptology, for instance. They're trying to say that they know more about classical Egypt and Egypt's past, more than the indigenous people of that country, the indigenous, the black people of Egypt. They're not even part of the archaeological team unless they're digging, okay? This is where we have put down, so we, other people have come in and they, they, are, they, they are creating our narrative or owning our narrative. And this is unfortunate. We have our own story to tell because we were telling it before. So Asa Iliad was a chemitologist. He looked at the major kingdoms of ancient Egypt, which was when he looked at when it was called Kemet, black people, when the, when, when the ancient Egyptians were indigenous African people. He says that as a result of colonization, imperialism, enslavement, these were the five ways that the Europeans, unfortunately, decide to break us away from a tradition. They try to destroy, distort, suppress, falsify, and to intentionally confuse. So when they couldn't destroy things, okay, they distorted it, you know, and they couldn't distort it, they suppressed it, they hid it away from people. The real museums, if you go to any museum on the world, whether it's America, whether it's Britain or France or Germany, the real museum is in the basement. <laughs> That's where the real museum is. So what are they hiding? Why are they suppressing this stuff? Now, when the Afrocentric movement began in the 1960s, they called the approach that the imperialists did in falsifying or distorting information, what they called it scientific colonialism. And they said there were three basic principles. Unsophisticated falsification, which means you tell an outright lie. Integrated modification, that's when you integrate the lie, the falsehood, the myth, the truth, okay? And you integrate it together. Integrated modification. And the last one is conceptual incarceration, where you are locked into that thinking because it's the minds which they want. Like Steve Biko once said, you know, what is the most potent weapon into the hands of the oppressor? The minds of the oppressed. This is why if many of you are as old as me, one of the things, if you remember what took place during the apartheid movement, they wanted to change the curriculum. They wanted to force the black South Africans, who are the oldest people on the world, mind you, they're L1. They're the oldest cluster group of people that DNA has discovered. These people. And when these Dutch slash German groups of people went in and adopted the Nazi rhetoric for an African country, in order to call it apartheid. And all those people who were victorious allowed that, to let, allowed that to happen. And people bleeding. They were executing kids and torturing children. The children walked out of the classrooms. They basically told us that we're not going to be taught in Afrikaans. Afrikaans is not our language. And Afrikaans is not your language. Why you use, why you treat us the way you're treating us, calling yourselves after what we call ourselves to give yourself legitimacy in the country, 
And you're telling us that we cannot in our tradition, we're not allowed to speak our tongue, you know, we're supposed to go to your school and you're going to give us the education, yeah, that you're giving your own people. And it's about memory. They want the memory. Once your memory is gone, you don't know who you are. This is why memory and history is really important. Because history is in everything. The first black Egyptologist, Sheikh Antibiot, was from Senegal, French. The first black Egyptologist, okay, who studied at the Sorbonne University in France. This man is a multi-genius. Just like him, Hopeton, okay? He was a multi-genius. He studied, he was a physicist. That was his background, physicist. And when he went to Egyptology as his doctorate, etc., they refused to allow him his thesis to be passed. He had to do his thesis three times because they would not accept a black Egypt. Egypt is an African country, even though the people may not look African. It is an African country. When they couldn't take Africans out of Egypt, they decided to take Egypt out of Africa and put it in the Middle East. You only can do that in your mind. Conceptual incarceration. Okay, this is what it's about, integrated modification. So the reality of this situation, that he was trying to put the missing pay, he's, he's from Senate, he's from Africa, he knows his history. He knows his history. He knows about the ancient Egyptians, who they really were. He was a linguist as well. And he created something which was called the melanin dosage test, where you, you create this chemical where you can put in a mummy. All you need is a quarter of a millimeter of skin of a mummy. And it will tell you how much pigmentation or melanin is in that skin. As soon as the um, Egyptologists knew about this, they decided to put it underground, all these mummies, because they like to put this on display. The only people they like to put on display are dark-skinned people. So how would people feel if I was to say, well, look, one day in a couple thousand years' time, we're going to take back control. One of the first things I think we should do is let's dig up Queen Elizabeth and Queen Victoria and put them on display in African universities in 2000 years time. You know, could you fathom that? Could you imagine that? But this is what, we were just mere objects. This is how we're seen. We know that they must be African people to put them on display. They don't even treat theirs like that. So this is the reality, this is what he did. And Theophilo Benga is a philosopher. This man speaks eight languages and not just eight languages. He also is from the Congo, Theophilo Benga, and he speaks classical Greek, classical Latin. This is what this man does. These two people were invited to a conference, a UNESCO conference in 1974 in Cairo. And there's a report that these two men wiped the floor with these white Egyptologists, what they had in there. They proved who the ancient Egyptians were. This is what they were able to do. And it was the first time in history that they decided to invite Africans to a conference to talk about Africa. Because it's always done by Europeans, similar to the Berlin Conference in 1884 and 1885. What took place then? You had a bunch of European men which represented a particular nation who was there to carve up Africa for his resources, for his minerals, for his commodities. This is what it was about. Not a single African leader was there at the splicing up, the splitting up, the partitioning of Africa. So this is important for us to understand. So these people are recoverists in a sense. They're there to recover their own history because they saw the cultural links, okay? So here, so these were the things which proved who the ancient Egyptians were. Physical anthropology, craniology, the skulls which they found were dalicocephalic, okay? Long, elongated skulls. These are African skulls, according to the classification of in, within craniology, human images. Majority of them are dark skinned. 
and they, you know, they are indigenous, they are light-skinned people. Eh? Sometimes the different skin colors was to represent certain other things. The melanin dosage test was the clencher. The mummies all tested with high levels of melanin. The same quantity of melanin that you find in what they refer to as sub-Saharan Africa, sub, subhuman, subordinate. Why are we calling it this? To split it off from what they would call uh, white Africa. They don't call it white Africa, but that is what's left in the mind. Because they say black Africa, then, you know, which means there must be a white Africa. No, it's just Africa. And Africa is a continent, not a country. And they've got people within the continent speaking like this now. So they've changed the narrative. Osteological evidence, looking at the bone, the skeletal remains of the people. Okay, eyewitness account, the Greeks said they were there. The Greeks were there. Remember, the Greeks came to Africa to study at the foot of the ancient Kinetic people. That's where they got philosophy from and took that back. And then when Alexander came there, he respected to some degree the knowledge and the wisdom that these groups of people had. But there was high witness. Herodotus is criticized that he was seeing things, etc. But he knew if he saw the black-skinned person, he saw the dark-skinned person. Why are we, so many thousand years later, trying to undo what he did, but yet he's the father of history? He's not the father of history when he started saying things that didn't coincide with the colonial project, with the, imperial, with the imperialist project. Then he looked at linguistic unity. He started to notice that the ancient Kemetic language, or Egyptian language, had large affinities and relationships with West, with West African languages. And the name of the country, which they call it, was Kemet, the Blacklands. They were trying to say it's a black soil. But if you read Medunetia, or what the Greeks call hieroglyphics, if you read Kemetu, that's what they call it, Kemetu, there's a man sitting there. They're talking about the people, okay, because they use pictographs. So there's no, you know, escaping the reality of what they call themselves and why they call themselves. Dark skin black was not a stigma for them. It's something they embraced. Some books which are out to attack Asking people around the world. So you've got Not Out of Africa written by Mary Lefkowitz, where she's basically trying to say that Africans haven't contributed anything to world history and science. And if the Greeks said they studied in Egypt under the Africans, it may not be that, that type of African and all this other type of nonsense. This is what's coming out now from the classical period because the Greeks and the Romans acknowledged yeah, where they got their information from. Because the reality is the Mediterranean is closer to Africa not to the Nordics, not in Northern Europe. That's what touched them. You know, the ancient Phoenicians who were known as Canaanites before the Greeks called them Phoenicians. Yeah, they were seafarers traveling around and they went into those places in the Mediterranean. Ancient Egyptians, you can look at the Carthaginian Empire and so on. Sumerian Empire was a black empire, which I'm going to show you and prove to you. Because they said, well, the, the, language, the language was not Indo-European and it certainly ain't Semitic. The word Sumer comes from the word blackheads. That's what the word Sumer comes from. And this is where we get the word summer, which would mean heat. So it was all to do with climate and skin color. Then you've got Black Athena, because a white person by the name of Martin Bernal wrote a three-volume book, which he's going to call African Athena. Because when you look at the classical work, he started to realize that a lot of what the classical world, the world was saying, you can find in Africa. So that's why they called it Black Athena. He wanted to call it African Athena, but the publisher said, no, it won't sell. The word Africa in the title won't sell. So you've got to call it Black Athena. So you can see how people's been conditioned over the years, where Black has been considered negative, but yet at the same time, it's associated with the people. 
Then you've got the end of racism. End of racism is basically saying that racism ended. It doesn't give us a date, a month and a year, but he's basically saying that racism has ended. And he's talking it from an American perspective. He does look at the British system, but he's talking from an American perspective. This can be further from the truth. Conceptual incarceration, okay? Unsophisticated falsification is a lie. Then they, they, they integrate, they modify it. They integrate, you know, integrated it by modification. And then conceptual incarceration. And this is what it is. Like Steve Biko said, the most potent weapon in the person who oppresses you is your mind. And this is what it's about. So you have to think outside our box. Unfortunately, some of our cultures are sick to a large degree, but we have to look outside our cultures in order to get a better eye and vision of how history really and truly is. And then you've got the bell curve, which came out, which was supported. This is in most of the universities, basically saying, oh, dumb black people are through high Q test, which is culturally biased. Because what? Because all IT, uh, when you look at IQ tests, it, it focuses primarily on the European culture. Other people got their own culture. Culture is very idiosyncratic. That's how culture is. It has its own particularities and specificities. So how can you use your culture as a, as a monitoring factor, as a barometer to judge this one? It doesn't work like that. Culture evolves based upon environment, based upon understanding, based upon the religious beliefs that people have. So these are the books that really attack the existence of Daskin people. And this is the reason why we have to have a Black History Month, because these things have, in, you know, have incarcerated, conceptually incarcerated mankind to the point where when we do talk about positive things about what we do, they said we're teaching good, good feeling, you know, a good, good sense of feeling and, you know, to motivate ourselves and all that other type of thing. When other people do it, it's fine. When we do it, it's not so fine. But this was the British Empire. Some say it's about a third of the world. Some say it was a quarter. So let's have a look what takes place. During the period of empire, racism permeated every field of intellectual life in Britain. In no field was it influenced more pervasive or more pernicious than historiography. Children and young people were taught a version of history which idolized and glamorized Britain. So everyone's complaining now about Picton and Colston, all these statues coming down. They idolized and glamorized Britain. These were killers, oppressors. I know, and this is the thing, the people who see them as part of our heritage. What type of heritage is that? Is this the people that you, you revere, you put up? Are you serious? They've killed thousands of people in the name of what? In the name of kingdom, in the name of um, empire, imperialism? We have to look at that. And these people are erected up in town centers and all these other places, etc. So you can see what's happening. The more brutal an individual seems to be, is the more they revere them and they want to make, him, make, make them into statues. Mainly men, you know, mainly men. But that is a changing of history. So if that's your best, if the likes of Colston, who was a slave merchant who used to rape women, and the other one, Picton, who did a similar thing, and you should read the story of what he was doing in Trinidad. And you're getting upset about that, then you're conceptually incarcerated. You've allowed people to take you, but you're not looking at the wider picture because you would not revere those people in the 20, 21st century and make, make them into monuments. You would not do that. You would not do that, but they were men of their time. What is that supposed to mean? There are many men who live in the same time who didn't engage in those type of practices. So what are you actually saying? Are you trying to justify that behavior? 
that genocidal mentality that these people had. So this is what came out of empire, unfortunately. People were in this country were made to worship at the foot of empire. And I know this because my parents were West Indian. They were so proud of Britain. They called it the mother country. My grandmother was proud. They didn't know very much. My grandmother was a bit different because she was a slave. And she was born in the 1800s. I only saw her for the first seven, eight years of my life. But many of you can't even say were sat in this room that they have a relative who they spoke to who was born in the 1800s. Most of your relatives were born in the early part of the 20th century. So that's what makes me a bit unique and a bit more of authority when I'm looking at this because I had it from the mouth of somebody who lived at that particular period. It may have been the last few years of the 1800s, but it's still the 1800s. This is what is important here, okay? And obviously it says it portrays black people's inferior. So evil people from evil empire are uh, uh, considered good, etc. But we were portrayed as being inferior. Inferior based upon what? Just skin color? Is that your barometer for judgment? And unfortunately, that how it, that's how it was. Most of the respected names in British 19th century historiography were racist. And most of them reflected in their writings racist ideology. Peter Fryer, there's his book there. You know, it's an excellent book. It's an old book. I think he wrote that either in the late 70s, early 80s, you know. But this was the reality of Britain at the time. People were worshipping, you know, imperialism. It made them feel good. But unfortunately, many didn't realise the type of atrocities that were being carried out in the name of empire, the name of crown, in the name of king or queen or country or whatever the case may be.